Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to University of Adversity. I'm your host, Lance Isios. We got a great episode for you today. We have the one and only Harris Goldberg joining us today. Harris has been a film director and a writer for decades. And today we get to peel back the curtain into his life, into some of his stories, into his thought process of what it takes to create success in this business. Such an awesome guy, like the, such a unique perspective. And, you know, for four years of doing this show, we've never, I've never had a director, a filmmaker come on the show and, you know, get to kind of see what that life's all about. So this was a, this was a really interesting episode. Some of the movies and some of the people, just to give you a little bit of a sneak peek, are, I don't know if you guys remember from the 90s, but there was a hilarious movie called Deuce Bigelow Male Gigolo, which he wrote and directed, which was a huge hit. He's also worked, also another movie, Master of Disguise, and he's also worked with people such as Matthew Perry from Friends. And he goes into some stories around um, that time, you know, the 90s, the 2000s, even before around what it was all like and working with these actors and kind of like his thought process and everything. You know me, I'm a curious person, so I wanted to do the best I could to pull out as much as I can for you guys and to get some value. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Harris is like a first-class guy, and I think you guys will really, really enjoy this. So if you're somebody that is a creator of any kind and you want to know what it takes to be successful, listen to this right to the end. And I promise you, you'll love it. All right. Enjoy the episode. Harris Goldberg coming right up. Here we go. Harris, welcome to University of Adversity, my man. So good to have you with us today. Thank you. Good, sir. It's good to, to, to see you and meet you and over this technology wonderland. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? I, it's, it's so cool to be able to do this stuff, to be able to connect with people all over the world. I obviously would rather do it in person, but you know, we got to get, we got to do what we can, right? Yeah, yeah true. So yeah. you're a, fe you're a fellow Canadian. We're both fellow Canadian. Canadian. You grew yeah, up right. in Hamilton, Ontario. Walk us through a little bit of what that was like for you, because I'm so curious as to how the path to how someone like you gets into the, into show business, into the movie world, especially in the time when you did. It's so interesting for me. So tell us what it was like for you growing up there and kind of paved the way for us a little bit. Well, I, I had a bit of an advantage in that I have an older brother named Dan. And I, I grew up about two blocks away from McMaster University. Now, at that time, my brother, who was 11 years older, I think, he was best friends with a guy named Ivan Wright. And, you know, Ivan, you know, went, went on to, well, I'll tell you this trajectory. So they had the thing called the McMaster Film Board, which was a very vibrant 60s film thing. And so they started to make movies. And there were all the Second City guys were at that university. So Rick Moranis, Dave Thomas, Eugene Levy. Actually, I think Rick was, was not there. And so all those guys, it was a very comedic sort of core, fertile ground. So my brother and, and Ivan started making movies and they, they started to get a name for themselves. They then over the summer, one, one year, wrote a summer camp movie that became Meatballs with Bill Murray. And that just became, and Ivan directed it, and my brother wrote it and produced it. And it just became this 
bizarre Canadian hit. It was the most successful film Canada had up until that point. So I had always been entertainment-based as a kid. Like I did magic as a kid. I was performing stand-up comedy when I was 15, 16. I was doing radio shows. But what I wanted to be was a tennis pro. I was absolutely, you know, I, I wanted to be the number one tennis player whatever. So I played tennis like all day, every day. You got off school. That's what I was going to do. I got to be pretty good. I got to be ranked in Canada. And I thought, that's what I'll do. But at the same time, I was very interested in, because of the influence of watching my brother, you know, he moved, then moved to California. And then they did Stripes with Bill Murray, the second film. So suddenly there are these big guys. I'm like, wow. Meanwhile, I'm, you know, going down the tennis route. I eventually ended up going on sort of the, the, the semi-pro circuit. I went to the States. And it was a real eye-opener for me because I, mm -hmm. I, I met some of the top players all over the world. And I realized, I mean, I was good, but I didn't have the head for it because the killer instinct was that these guys had was brutal. Mm -hmm. I, I used to say I had the strokes, but I didn't quite have the head. Yeah. And then I had a pivotal match with a really good player when it ended up being in the top 10 eventually. And I got so destroyed that it was like a, an eye opener where it was like God looking down and going, oh, you want to, you want to make this your living? So I was pretty devastated because I didn't know what I was going to do. So I went to teach tennis at Club Med for six months, which was, I actually ended up writing a TV show about it called Stuck in Paradise because I thought it was going to be a real running away getaway. And it was a nightmare. I was trapped. I couldn't get off it. It was weird people. They wouldn't give me my passport back and I had to fill out my contract. So anyway, so I came back and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was in my twenties. So I wrote a screenplay one summer. I went to college and, and after college, I wrote a screenplay. I had a friend of mine who was also a stand-up comic and a writer. He helped me with it as well, or I helped him. We, we got some money from the Canadian government, from Telefilm Canada. We went down to Los Angeles for the first time for two weeks. And when I got there, it was a magical, like I'd never seen palm trees. It was, it was, I, as soon as I got there, I went, this is where I'm supposed to be. It all came together. Mm -hmm. And I just became a hustling, you know, crazy man. I mean, I was just calling, you know, people from the trade magazines, you know, studios. Anyway, we sold the screenplay within a week to National Lampoon. Well, that's a big company to sell to. Yeah, and it was, it was just, we got paid more money than I'd ever seen before, both of us. What year was this? Just to put into context for people. Yeah. So, and you go down, what year was this? And you sell it to National Influence. This was 1988. Oh, wow. So that yeah. was like the. Yeah. yeah. So, and it was, it was, that was a magical time in Hollywood because it was still the tail end of the old Hollywood system. So there right. Was studios, just, you know, it's Fox. Warner Brothers, Universal, Disney, Paramount, you know, a couple others. It was all run by like these real characters who had been in the business forever. You know, the guys you've heard on Bob Evans, who did, you know, was head of Paramount and did The Godfather, mm -hmm. all these guys. And because of my tennis, at that time, tennis was the boom. There was no cell phones, there was no internet. So people would meet at their places, at their homes, their estates. 
on the tennis court. And I very quickly got a reputation as, oh, I want, I want Harris to play. So I was a, like a ringer, basically. Uh. So I had the legitimacy of selling the script. And then we got an agent, my partner and I, at William Morris. And I was going, I'm not leaving. So I'm there as a Canadian. I don't have a green card. I don't have anything. I'm just there for two. And then Tom went back. It's his name, Tom. Nursel. Came back to Canada. I decided I'm staying. So I found an apartment and I, and I said, I'm not going back to Canada. And I didn't. So I started just getting into the whole LA thing very quickly through the tennis. I mean, I was playing it. I'm not kidding. Jack Nicholson's house, Barbara Streisand's house. Wow. You know, he would show up. But I was basically on their teams because it was very competitive of teams that didn't want to lose. So they went, oh, I'll play with Harris. So I would be like this proverbial fly on the wall listening to deals. And, and, and I became very relaxed among these guys because I could make them laugh. They knew I had sold a script. They knew I was at Willie Moore. So I, I slowly started to get in. Anyway, that was my sort of foray into L.A. And I eventually, you know, I I'd had my car driven down. I never went back. I, I got rid of my Canadian place. I got, you know, H1 visas for a while. And, and then we wrote another screenplay for, and that got picked up by Disney and made, which I didn't know was, am I giving you too much detail? About this? No, this is great. This, okay. which, which one got picked up by Disney? Okay, this was 1989, and it was called I'll Be Home for Christmas. It was okay. actually an Adam Sandler movie, so he was going to be in it. Right. It was, it was a great script. So Disney was so impressed with the script, they offered us a three-picture deal, which I didn't even know what that was, really. Wow. So you go into Disney. They treat us like, I mean, I never, it was, a, it was magic. I thought, this, this is the greatest job in the world. I didn't, you know, I didn't know it was any, because right there, Tom and I were kind of the new flavor we hadn't screwed up yet. So we were like the new guys, you know, because we, we sold the script so fast. It got green lit. So we made this multi-picture deal and now we're in. So we're getting all this money, you know, from the studio to write whatever we want. They would call us in and say, here's the movies we're doing next year. Which one do you want to write? Mighty Ducks, this, this, this. And we would just go, whoa, whoa, whoa. And we thought, wow. This is the way it is. And they would screen movies for us in, in, a, in their own, like we'd have our own theater in the, at Disney. And they'd say, go watch this. And it'd just be Tom and I had drinking cappuccino. Anyway, long story short, Tom kept going back and forth. I stayed. And the more I stayed, the more people I was meeting. And it was happening very, very quickly. Okay, so the movie then got made. But instead of it being an Adam Sandler college-based comedy, Disney had a deal with Taylor Thomas at the time. I don't know if you remember him. But I remember like, as a kid. I'm, I mean, I mean, I'm 30. Yeah. I'm 39. So that that kid was like the all the girls that I went to school yeah. with in the grade six loved him. I'd be like, why do you like that guy so much? Yeah, yeah. So he he was on that Tim Allen show. Yeah, Home Improvement for everybody oh, listening. He was like the star teenage heartthrob in the in the Bot magazines and Home Improvement. And he was the kid. He was the yeah. that kid. Let's just preface it like that yeah so he uh, they said can you rewrite this for him and we said well that's a whole different movie because he's a high school kid but they in their the marketing department said that's what we're doing and we were kind of disappointed but we did redid it we didn't like it nearly as much because the heck took off a lot of the edge yeah and anyway the movie got made they and it was i didn't like it 
be honest. Mm. Okay, I was very disappointed. It wasn't even like the script at all. It was exciting to see our first movie and our names up on in the theater because they didn't at that time. There was no no internet, no online streaming. It was just theaters, and it would be out there for two months. Your movie with like six others, and then it would be six months later. It would go to DVD. So it was a big yeah. deal to get it into a theater. Like everyone knew your name and everything. So it came out, but it didn't do well. It just didn't. So it did. So suddenly that was the first kind of like, oh, they got it made, but, and money talks in, in, in Hollywood. If it doesn't make money, it's a little bit of a black market. I, I'm so curious. I, I, I just want to interject so, one question here about this. When you make a movie, yeah. what are you, like, how do you know if it's going to be good or not? Like, do you, when you, when you make one, do you go into it feeling like this is awesome? Because I've heard that some people say they think it's going to be great and it's it's not. And then sometimes you they go into it thinking it's not going to be and it's like a surprise. Like what what was that feeling like back then when you when 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 you go into something? Do you kind of know or do you just or no. you know just in general do people just kind of go in just like hoping for the best because there isn't streaming. It's kind of like and then and what is it that makes something good like well, what it that's a that's a good question and, and it, it even to today this goes for for today and it's the one thing i tell young people that are coming up when it's the guy's name william goldman mm. who wrote one of the academy award for butch casting a sundance kid as a screenwriter he wrote marathon marathon man he wrote all kinds he's great right one of the great writers he had a quote that he said in hollywood you only need to know one thing no one knows anything and it's true Everyone you meet has an opinion and they all, the executives, the agents, the producers, the actors, everyone goes, this is going to be a hit. And all the decisions are made just on what if. It's like the stock market. Okay. But the only thing you can do really is you have an idea that you like personally. So if I, there's a subject matter that's important to usually a theme, something that in my own life you know, like in my case, I always find uh, it's a search for family or a search for safety underneath it. So the character, I'm drawn to sort of solitary characters that have to go through something. And then I think, of, I think, is this something I would want to see? Would I pay 12 bucks or at that time, seven bucks to go see this? And that's it. That's all I can do. And I write what I would love to go see and hope that there'll be a lot of other people who will feel the same way. Okay. So. Once you do that, the problem is as soon as you finish it, you hand it over to the powers that be, everybody starts changing it. Okay. What about this? And because everyone you know, thinks they have a, a, well, I think we should do this. And the marketing department has a point of view of, of how do we get more demographics? You know, if we do this, if we make it more sexy, if we make it more violent, if we make it more this, if we make the character this, we'll, we'll be able to attract this. And that's where it starts to go downhill. Okay. So what happens when every, any movie ever comes out or a TV show, everyone has high hopes. And it, was, it would be, that's why on Friday night, the movies would always come up Friday night. And then it would take two days to get the returns. And sometimes they'd think it was going to be the biggest movie ever. And it would flop and almost destroy the, the studio because they'd lose, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And they go, what happened? Because you never know what the audience is going to go see on the day. Same thing. 
when sleeper movies, little small movies come out and they think, ah, we're just going to put it in a few markets or whatever. And suddenly it explodes and you go, what? My yeah. big fat Greek wedding, you know, these movies that cost nothing. And then what was the one? Blair Witch. You know, yeah. these little. So, no, nobody knows anything, and but they will not admit it or they don't believe it. Mm. But I know that's why all I can do is go, what is it that I want to see and do the best job I can? And then if they want to change it, I try to, and then I get very political. You know, what's worth fighting for? What's not worth fighting for? Am I directing it? If I'm directing it, it's a different feeling than if I'm just selling the script and they're saying we want to pay for it. Because mm. basically what you're doing is, taking the money and walking away. Hmm. So it, it's, but it's an emotionally, it's an emotional roller coaster because you're dealing in a business where it's all smoke and mirror, not all, but there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and, and you can't really believe anything, but it's so seductive to believe everything. Hmm. So that took me a long time to learn that by the way, because yeah, so. The the '90s were just such an interesting era for movies, like the that's such good movies, so many good directors, and it's changed so much now, right? Like it's all about the big box office, you know, all of these like Marvel movies and stuff. You don't find a lot of the smaller movies, right? Like you did in the '90s. Well, like that's a, a lot good different. Point. Yeah, I mean, it's all if you've gone through enough yeah. cycles, okay, because. I I must I love the history of, of movies. So I, yeah. I I watch the cyclical business aspect. And I've also been through eighties, nineties, two thousands now going. Yeah. They see the cyclical and you realize it all repeats itself eventually. There's waves, okay? Now back in the nineties, because you only had six studios that were all owned individually, there were all kinds of movies. There were five million dollar movies, there were twelve million dollar movies, the most expensive movie at that time was 20 and so you had each studio was making 25 to 50 movies a year so you had all these great ideas and what they would do that the mindset was as as the studio executives or head would say let's make 50 movies we're gonna we're gonna send them out there out of the 50 we might have eight or nine big hits and then we'll have you know 10 or 12 to 15 medium hits and then the rest will underperform but at the end of the year, we're going to have a profit doing all that. Okay. And then what happened was big corporations started to buy up these studios. So Sony would buy Columbia, Disney was bought, all these places. So these bigger companies, Gulf and Western, Paramount. So these big companies were going, oh, this is just a piece of our mega business. We want to make money. And what happened was there were, did everything changed the day that Jim Carrey did, I think it was Mask. And we, I had the same attorney Jim had. Oh, and wow. I was in her office when she got the unprecedented amount of $20 million picture for that movie for Jim. And wow. that from like the most an actor would have gotten at that time is three. Yeah. Three, four. So by getting 20, it, it completely skewed everything because every actor now wanted to get 20. It pushed the budgets up on all the movies. So suddenly movies had to become bigger. The, the companies that now own these smaller studios were going like, we want that. We want big, we want to make a hundred million dollars in a weekend, not three months. We don't want, like I did a movie called Deuce Bigelow Male Jiggle. Oh yeah, classic. Okay. That cost $16 million. 
and it made $58 million theatrically and about 115 worldwide. And then on video, same thing. But for Disney, that was considered a hit movie. Hmm. Now they would want nothing. We want to make $400 million. So what they've done is by having these Marvel movies, these Marvel movies by definition, Star Wars, Marvel, whatever, they're such big franchises. They cost a fortune to make, but they make so much money because they just kind of globally hit it. They're like giant video games. Yeah. We're at the point of no return where everyone wants that money. So you don't get those. Nobody wants to do very, no one wants to do for the most part, smaller, more interesting movies, character driven, the stuff that we're talking about in the nineties. So it's a different mindset, but it's starting to change around. People are getting tired of just the in your face, you know, theatrical experience. Yeah. How has that, the change over the decades changed your writing style? Because are you actually writing the way you want or is it like skewed because you have to write a certain way as time changes? Like, how has that been for that, you? That, that, that's a good, the only change I would say is, is that what, what I would do before is, is I, if I thought of a good character or a good situation, I would play it out. If it was a romantic comedy, if it was a small drama, it was, and there were certain limitations. But now because it's the landscape is so big, I first think of a big idea. So it's usually action or thriller. It's often sci-fi. Uh, it's often a, it's, it's something where you go, oh. How do you get those big ideas? Let's start there. How do you get those? And then let's like distill it down. How do you get those big ideas? Well, first of all, I'm the kind of, okay, well, I have like a notebook everywhere I go. So I have okay. one in my car. I have one by my bed. I always have one on my small notebook. So when I walk around, I just have this, I've always, everything seems like an idea to me. So I'm talking to you now mm. and I'm going, oh, what if, what if right now I'm looking at you and suddenly someone just grabbed you and you came and you kidnapped you. And I'm going, Lance, what the? I go, well, that's an interesting beginning to a movie. You know, like, where is he? And now this stranger, me, has to go, the guy just, no one believes me. Uh. You know? and, and so I decide I got to go find this guy. Now that's the beginning of a movie. So then I start with an idea where he kind of tickles you a little bit. And then I go, where does, where could, where could that be about? And then what I do is think of a character. So I go, oh, well, usually it's me. Like I go, if I was in that situation, is it fun or is it exciting or what could happen? And then you just start thinking about it. And then I write it down. So I might write it down. As I go, I'll go on the notebook. I have various things like character, TV idea, movie idea, you know, concept, whatever it is. I put it under there and I just leave it. So at the end of every month, I might have a hundred of them. And so if I'm finished a new project, I go, oh, I wonder if I have anything in my note thing. And I start looking and I, and once, and out of those ideas, a handful really stick out and I can't forget them. And I, I still don't write them and I just start thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And then if it sticks, I start thinking of very interesting, oh, it could go here. It could go here. And if I could think of the ending, oh, it could end here. And I go, I get that hairs on the back of my head. I circle that one. I go, that's a keeper. Hmm. And then when I actually finish a project, because it, sometimes it takes up to six, eight months to write a, I write fast, but for a feature, it's hard. I know I'm giving you too much here, but. No, no, this is great. Love and this. Here's, here's the other thing is that when I first started, I used to outline everything first. So I would write down exactly where I'm going for the whole movie. Then I would start writing. I stopped doing that. 
And I, because I found it was, it was boring. I wasn't enjoying it because I'd already worked it out. I didn't want to go back and rewrite. So I changed it to every morning when I wake up to start writing, I, I have an endpoint and I don't know where the character is going. And I go, what can I do today that's going to turn me on? And that's what makes writing fun for me because I don't know where it's going. But it's also, also scary because you don't know where it's going. But after you do it a lot, you start to get used to it. And then it becomes the driving force in your writing style. So I've learned to do that. So that's how I write now. But it's very, you have to do it a lot. It's practice. And so that's how, so then what I do is I take the smaller idea, the character stuff, and I shove it into a bigger idea so that the audience doesn't quite know that I'm actually, oh, he's putting in a heartfelt really. Oh, he's putting in a theme. Oh, he's, and they don't see it coming. So they're watching the bigger thing to go, oh, let's go see that movie. And then they, and then it, hopefully they'll come out and go, God, that really, I really felt. So now you got the double way of it. You get them in, but you've actually sort of, you know, you've, you've done whatever. You've entertained them in a way that you sort of said something. So it's kind of a little bit of a balancing act. It's fascinating to me how, as a director or writer, how you can pull people's strings through just like these, you know, cause I, when I only was in drama class, you know, so I only got that, that aspect of it. But when I saw that it's just shot scene by scene, just this cut, this cut, and then it's all pieced together. And some of the stuff is filmed at different times. And the fact that it can just be intertwined into this beautiful thing that is so emotionally able to like be able to pull people's strings and leave people feeling a certain way is just so fascinating the story and how it's all tied together it's like well, I can, it's I can magic talk, to any, talk magic. to any filmmaker okay director i i've you know friends who are fellow filmmakers we all say the same thing it's a miracle a movie gets made because when you're actually it and you're the director which can be terrifying you have 150 people you've got all these logistics and you go how the heck am i gonna make this and then you're just day after day, you're putting these little bits together and you're just praying that, you know, did you capture the right, you know, performance here? Is this going to cut together or whatever? And at the end of this, whatever, four to, uh, not four, yeah, four to 10 week shoot, you have all this footage and then it has to be, you have to switch it over and it's all on this, you know, you go on the post-production and that's where you're really kind of making the movie. Yeah. And, and, and it's and when it does come together, and sometimes it's right down to the music. And you put the music on, and you go, "Oh, it works! It's it is magical." That's another thing. It's like the choice of the music, and it's so yeah. Like for me, I'm just I'm so interested in the creative process of this. You know how somebody like yourself is able to get an idea and then trust that it's going to work out and that the next thing will come. And I guess why I'm so interested in it is because I just wrote a book and I, I had to, I watched how it unfolds like that. It's like you take the first couple steps and then more opens up, but you don't have all the answers right in the oh. beginning. And you have to trust in like, there's like a guidance or like your intuition where it's like, this is going to work out. I'm not, I don't have it now. I'm a little bit blocked but I know it's going to happen. And, and it, it, it's like giving, it really, it's brutal. It's brutal, yeah. satisfying, but it's like giving birth. And that's what I mean, but 
You go, I can't tell you the screen. I just about finished a screenplay. It's been taking me eight months and it's been the hardest thing I've ever written. And I wanted to quit a thousand times. I went, Why no, didn't you quit? Why didn't you quit? Because I, I've done it so many times and I do. There's something about the character. I went, I know I can do this. And, it's, and I, I just, I was compelled to finish it at all costs and I couldn't leave it alone. But I would have three days where I, would, I just didn't know what to do. I'd go for long four-hour walks going, what's the next beat? How do I? And then I'd go, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then I might see an old movie or I might see something on my walk or I might see something. And then suddenly I go, what if? And then it, it opens up the next section. Oh, my God, I know where to go next. And then I get really excited. So I go to that point, which might be like another 10 pages or something. And then I, and then I might get stuck again. But because I had already just, I conquered the last one, I go, I know I can do this for another X amount of times to get to the end. Mm. And then you just, from doing it, like once you make, if you're a craftsman and you make a chair and you keep making chairs and eventually you go, I know how to make a chair. Uh, I don't know if I hope it's going to be balanced. I hope people can sit and people aesthetically like it. So I pray at the end. But then what happens is when you finish this stuff, and you get a positive reaction. So your manager or agent says, hey, this is really good. Or somebody calls and goes, hey, I just read this really. Then you start going, oh, maybe I'm okay. And then some people go, nah, I didn't buy it. And you go, oh, maybe I'm uh, but, but the better you get, now when I finish something, more often than not, I know it's a pretty good read. Okay, now, whether it gets made or not, who knows? Mm -hmm. But I know it's going to stand up against competition or it's going, there's going to be... So, but it's taken me 30 years of doing it to get any good at it. I mean, I don't think I was a great writer when I started. I, I just enjoyed doing it. I liked being solitary. I could write 10 hours a day if I wanted to and be okay with it. I got lost in it and I just learned how to do it. So, but it's a, it's a, like any art, it's not just writing, it's music, it's painting. It's, it's, it, it's, you have to be a particular kind of person. It's not for the faint of heart. So you know, I know a lot of people don't want to write, but they never actually write. Why is that? Can we, can we dive into that more? Because yeah. what is that and why is that? Because it's hard. Just think yeah. about it. I wake up at, okay, here's my thing. I wake up at five in the morning. Okay. I make myself a coffee. I'm right in front of the computer. You look at that script again. You go, but, and I go, I'm now going to be staring at this screen for three different three-hour sessions today, okay? Every day, seven days a week. Sometimes not well, nine hours, but always six hours. And I, but I like it. Like I enjoy, I enjoy being, uh, I'm alone. I lose myself in it. I have a, a way, I break up the day with, I work out a lot, so I have two, which I look forward to that. Little things make me, you know, I go, oh, when are we gonna have to dinner tonight? And then I write something. I like the fit feeling of completion. But it's a hard road. It's, and you look at other people who are going to their to, to jobs and they're just, you know, they're getting a regular paycheck. This is also a very mercurial business. So it's feast or famine. So you get, you can make a ton of money and then nothing, ton of money and nothing. So you, you have to, you have to be okay with that kind of feast or famine kind of thing. Trust the unknown. Yeah, it's scary. Like, like, you know, I've got, I must have seven, eight projects that are, TV and features right now that are at various stages. I don't know which one's going to go. And if a financial guy said, Hey, what's your year going to look like? I have no idea. It's like, it's like you're in Vegas. 
that I've been doing it so long, I'm just used to it. But it's a hard road. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can I can only imagine that you just get better at just trusting the process. You, you've done it. And it's like, you you must just, you know what? This is just part of it. You know, you, you like you said, the hills and valleys of it. You, 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 when you're in that flow, you just ride it out. And then when you're not, you just. Yeah. And it's seductive. It. You know, when you have success and people know about it, 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 you almost feel like you're, you go, oh, I did that. They go, you did that? It's a great icebreaker. And you feel like you want to do it again. Yeah. You want to get back into the, you want that attention. You want that. You know, there's nothing like being in, when, when you're in a theater and you hear a bunch of people laughing or your jokes become, I remember when Deuce Diggle came out, which was an okay movie. I didn't love it, but it did well. I remember I was watching the Academy Awards that year and the host was Billy Crystal. And the movie was number three in the box office, but no, I didn't think, hmm, big deal. And he came out during, after the commercial and he goes to the worldwide... He goes, this just then, the Pope's favorite joke, their favorite movie is Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. And I went, oh my God, like just something I wrote. <laughs> it's been, and that was a real high because he felt like, I mean, this is a little, I mean, I don't know how meaningful it is, but it's hard not to feel like you want to be, you know, you make a mark or you want people to know you or you, you mistakenly think it's like an attention and love or something. And, you know, so there's a lot of that too. You're constantly playing that game. Was it tough? Well, I mean, your brother was very successful as well, right? Was it, was it tough kind of like having his success over you and like, you want to prove yeah. that you got it as well? And real driving for it. Now my brother, you know, he went on to do some very, you know, he did the hangovers, and did, you know, space jam. The Old first school, one. right? Old Private school. parts. Some it of the funniest. So he and I, there was actually a point when I was in Los Angeles that we actually started working together as partners, which I was shocked that he would do that. But he was just at a stage where he wanted, he just said, do you want to partner up? And I was in heaven. I, I, I mean, because I worshiped the guy. I, I thought I never was happier in my life than when I was working. And I just felt my life is going to be great. And, I, and then after about eight months or so, we finally set up a couple of projects. But something happened and we split up. And that was probably the, one of the most you know, difficult things I ever went through. But yes, I, I constantly find his, is it a driving thing? Yeah, there's something there. Yeah, there's something there. You, you want to be as good. You, you want his, it's the older brother thing. You want their totally. attention. You want their pat in the back. You want them to say you're good, you're okay. And it's, it, it, that's tough, yeah. What was the hardest part? Looking back, because I know that you had quite a bit of anxiety. I think we all go through that at certain times, and I'd love to learn more about that. Is is would you say that was the hardest part, or maybe walk us through some of like those moments, those dark moments that you okay. that you made it through? Because I think you know a lot of people see you hear about the successes, right? You hear about what went well, but what I'm always fascinated with is like how you had the resilience to keep going during the, some of the dark shit, you know, and, and make it out of there. Well, I, I had a particularly, well, I was there when I was, I was the first three or four years, I was really driving hard. I mean, I was just, you know, networking and writing and tenant, everything. And I found it 
the stress was really high, but I didn't realize it. But I mm. kept pushing. I'd never take a vacation. I was always questioning, what else can I do? What have I missed? What's the other guy doing that I'm not doing? I'll write another, I'll come up with another idea. And I was really driving myself into the ground. And then I started to get this w- weird physical symptom. So I started to sort of drive around, walk around. And I felt a little disconnected, you know, like you're kind of watching yourself. And, it, you know, and I, I remember saying to myself then, God, I don't feel the way I did when I used to play tennis and I was alive and alert and sharp. I just sort of feel numb. Mm. Okay. But I just kept pushing myself. And then I wasn't sleeping or anything. And then I'd never touched a drug in my life. Okay. I never, I was very healthy. But I, st- I started to smoke a little marijuana and I found, oh my God, this is, I sleep well. This is, I never felt, it stopped my brain for a couple hours. I just, you know, I would just go, wow. So I would do it very selectively. I go, oh, that's my treat. It's like having almost like a drink with a Scott. And I go, oh, three weeks have gone by. Maybe I'll just, it'll always be by myself or whatever. And for a little while, it was, I, I, I really was going, hey, this is, as long as I'm hurting my lungs, you know, I, I, I think this could be like just, Anyway, I kept pushing myself. And then, and then one day, I actually made a movie about this called Numb with Matthew Perry. Yeah. And what happened was, I mean, I might be going into too much detail, but I had, I had a new partner and we, we, had a, I had, we came up with an idea and we sold it, but, but it was a, on a bidding war. And what that means is there's multiple studios bidding for that same idea, which is pretty rare. So it was a very exciting day. So yeah, everyone's calling and guys, what, we'll give you this, we'll give you this. So now do it here. So it was really quite stressful. Anyway, we ended up making the deal. And then that night, instead of being happy about it, I dreaded it. I didn't want to work with this guy. I didn't want to write this idea. I felt like I could have got better. I was missing my brother. I was strangely low. So the, the new partner and I went out and decided to have dinner with a friend. And the friend who was a photographer, went back to her place and she had, she said, hey, do you want to smoke a joint? I said, yeah, I just want to go to sleep. So we started to pass around this thing and I don't know what happened, maybe it was too strong or I smoked. But anyway, I had a massive panic attack. I mean, it scared the crap. I'd never had that. And I was fine afterwards, you know, but it was scary. And then that trick, and then I decided I got to go back to Canada, visit my family. Cause it'd been years. I was so tired. I couldn't, I just wanted to get away from California. So I booked the trip home for five weeks later to go see. And I was really excited to see my friends, go back to Canada. And during those five weeks, I didn't relax. I pushed even harder to finish this universal movie. So I was driving myself. The night before I'm supposed to fly back, I had a, now I had another panic attack. Same thing, like, like when I was, when I had, I'd never, I wouldn't smoke pot again. I said, that's it. But I still had that same feeling. I went, oh my God, like what? Is this still in my system? I'm going, what the? And then I was okay. And then Can you explain got, what happened just for people? Like how did, what did it feel like? I just want to like. It felt like it was sort of like you're, I was sort of okay. And then suddenly I just had this feeling of like being like this anxiety coming up. Like it was like in your stomach and it kind of. Did you have like a heart attack? Like your heart was going to come out of your, feel like it's going to pop out of your chest kind of thing? Yeah, I was breathing and and you just felt like something really horrendous is about to happen and your life is at stake. Like, oh my God, something, I think I'm going to die and nobody else gets it. It's just you. And 
they're all looking at you kind of in some cases sort of laughing, smiling. And then, and you're going, oh, I'm in real deep trouble here and I can't control, I can't get out of it. I can't, and this is the first time I haven't been able to control myself in that way because I've always been pretty good. You know, I do something physically. So as soon as I got back to Canada, the day I touched down, I completely crashed. And that threw me into a, you know, you know, I've now become very well-versed in what was going on, but it was like panic attacks, constant anxiety. I had this depersonalized feeling all the time where I was you know, detached all the time. And, you know, I mean, no, no one would know, but I thought oh, I'm, I'm in deep trouble here. And that, then I came back to LA and I was a mess. I mean, it was, I was amazed I got through each day to be honest with you. I, I was amazed I survived, but I, I started to research it, talk to people. It was terrifying. And it went on for a really long time. And that's when I decided I can't write these big, stupid comedies anymore. These Adam Sandler movies, these, I said, I can't do it. So I sat down and I just wrote, I said, I'm going to write about what happened to me. So I wrote this journalistic, it was almost a cathartic thing. And that became numb. Never thought it would get made in a million years. I finished the script. I gave it to a friend of mine who was a producer of a movie called Rushmore, Jason Schwartzman movie back then, which was a great little movie. He loved it. And I was mm. shocked. He gave it to Matthew Perry. Matthew called me out of the blue. Like, because I have to play this part. I have to meet you right now. And I go, wow. He goes, I'll meet you. And literally five minutes later, we were meeting. And he goes, I have to play this part. And that started this whole fast thing where I suddenly I'm directing this movie with Matthew. And it just all happened quickly. I didn't know how I felt about it because it was so autobiographical. I didn't want to tell anyone it was odd because it was still raw. So here I am in Vancouver, shot in Vancouver, with all these actors, Mary Steenburgen, and all this, and I'm directing what's literally happening to me in real time on the screen. It was the weirdest, it was so odd. And that came out. I don't know how I finished it, but it had this weird resonating effect because no one ever heard of it. No one knew much about anxiety or they didn't know a lot about it. There wasn't a lot out there. So, yeah, that's we, true. so suddenly that opened a whole discussion with people, which I liked. Like I felt, oh, this is making a bit of a difference. And that was probably my lowest point, not making the movie, but before when I crashed like that, because I was very humbled by, oh, wow, you know, if you're not careful, you can really, life can throw you a loop and it's frightening. Yeah. And that would have been what, late nineties, like primetime friends days when Matthew Perry. No, that was like 93. Oh, so it was before his friends days. His Uh, friends started in 95 and then it went on to be like, you know, the biggest Oh, well, maybe it was then. He had been on Friends. That's Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would have been, yeah, because I think Friends started in 95. And it's crazy because Matthew Perry talks about his story now. Like, it was just. Oh, yeah, they must have been because I wrote this in 2004. Yeah. So so I wrote it quite a bit. Like, I had, took me about a decade to to get a handle on this thing. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's interesting that he that he wanted to play it right because now that you learn more about his story and like it's crazy some of the stuff he talks about right because his book's out now and well like, he was like i mean he had he was in recovery when i met him he just yeah. got rough time so we really bonded yeah i you bet game like brothers i saw him every day for i mean i mean we just were like this and you know i think he needed this to it was weird because 
I was, I was going, I'm trying to sort of tell him, this is what I went through and he's trying to do it the way he went through it. But we were both dealing with the same desperation. Right. So, but I knew he was dealing with all this stuff back then, but I, he, he, he told me he had it under control and it was over, but obviously it wasn't. And, uh, you know, he, he was, a you know, look, I love Matthew. He's, yeah. he's, he's great. He's so talented. I was very proud of him for doing this, you know, but he's, you know, like, like both get a little bit tortured sometimes, but I was proud of him for writing the book. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's crazy to see because someone like that, you know, you, you see him, I mean, I, that was in my, my youth watching that and you see these different he looks different in certain parts of his life. And then he talks about when I was that there, I was doing this. And when I was there, I was doing this and I can see myself. And it's, it's interesting because like, I always ask myself, like, how the hell can these guys keep it together? Like you must've seen so much stuff. You must've just, did it blow your mind sometimes? Like seeing some of these, these people and how they're able to keep these, their lives together well, through this craziness. Well, because I was sort of a, for a while, like, like a go-to guy, like in other words, they go, hey, go write a movie for, with uh, Rob Schneider or Dana Carvey or Matthew, whatever. So I would sort of become very close with these guys for about a year or so. And we were like, you know, every day. And then I realized, oh, this isn't going to last long. This is very temporary. And I just watched them a lot. And they were all kind of the same. They were very, they, they, there was a, they were drawn to the attention. And the success they had, like they were, they were trying to still grab, like, so if they were on SNL, they'd want to regain that. Matthew, despite the fact where he goes, I, I hate being out in public. I don't want to, he loved being out in public. I mean, we couldn't go out without, I'd noticed, you know, he always was out there and we were, I, I couldn't meet him without going to some club and he, he needed the stimulation. I'd go, why are we, I don't get it. Like, huh. why are we, but I realized, you know, when you're in that Hollywood system, and I'm a little bit like it too. I haven't even been in Canada for since the pandemic. I miss it's like being in war. You, 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 you get used to the traumatic highs and lows of it because uh, it, it might be stressful, but things happen there that don't happen anywhere else. You meet people, you have experiences that just don't happen in other parts of the, the world. And, and so the opportunity is there for what if? What mm. if I. I mean, I can't tell you how many things got made, movies, whatever, just bumping into some, you know, actor at a coffee shop and sit down. They go, oh, you did that? Oh, yeah. And you start talking before you know it. Hey, I got an idea. And you're, you're onto something. I wouldn't, it just doesn't happen other places. Mm. So all these guys, I thought that it was very material. So they get high and low. And they, I think they're all prone to that for the most part. And some people were more, more prone than others. But it's, it's an insidious it's wonderful, but it's insidious because it's rejection and, and then your people love you. It's like back and forth. It's never the same. So, so you're always going to that elusive. And now it's even more, more difficult because everyone's doing podcasts and YouTube. And back then it was like, if you wanted to yeah. do this, it would cost you $200,000. Yeah, it's crazy. Man. Make, I mean, there, there's no way to express yourself. Now it's just like everyone can have, you know, they're, you know, Two million hits if they have the right thing on without costing much, you know. Yeah, you had to be really. That's what I mean. That's why it's fascinating to hear like your story about being a director or an actor back then or a screenwriter. Like you had to be really good. A lot of things had to align for you to kind of get yourself in the door. Like what you did with the tennis is so perfect. It's like, hey, I'm just kind of I'm playing tennis. I'm easing my way, and it's such an interesting story how that worked out. But 
like, but you're also talented. So it was kind of like, you know, things just fell into place at your right place at the right time, but you also had skill. And then you were like, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it comes, it still comes down to the material. Yeah, like, for sure. Like I have this sort of theory that if you write something or make something good, it eventually finds it, like, like this podcast, if it's good enough and it resonates, sometime, somewhere it's going to click. Mm-hmm. You don't know where, but the marketplace is always changing. You don't, you don't know where or when, but if your stuff's good, it finds, it finds the wheel and then it clicks in and then it happens. Yeah. So I, so I know that the material is everything. Everything else is just opportunity. So if I know I have a good script and a good idea, I have like five or six, seven right now that are three years old, five years old, whatever it is. And I'd be in a, I'm in a situation, you know, socially or business-wise, and someone goes, you know what we really need right now? We need a, this kind of movie. I go, I think I have one. Mm. And I, I tell them the idea. They go, hey, that's perfect. Now, it wasn't perfect two years ago. It's perfect now. But it's done. And I know it's right. good. So I can then go, do you want me to send it to you? Yes. They read it right away because they want it. And they go, hey, this is great. And then suddenly now you have, you've got something going. But the work has already been done. I spent a year writing. So mm-hmm. I know I have it in my back pocket. If you don't have that and you just say, I have an idea and they go, great, I'll, I'll go work it out. You know, you don't know what's going to, I mean, they'll lose interest in the next, I mean, everyone's attention is quite small now. So you have to get in there, you know, set it up very quickly and move fast. So it's, I, I, I love what you said there about if your work is good, eventually it's going to find the right people. And it's such a good thing for people because I think right now there's this, it has to do with social media and these vanity metrics that are out there that people are able to manipulate certain things to look almost better than they are or mislead people. And it becomes this thing like you, you start to question your own results and if you're at the place where you should be versus seeing somebody else. And then you start to question, well, like, is this actually the right thing or this guy's got this, but then you realize that there's like other things, smoke and mirrors is like things happening that, you know, I don't, that can maybe making it look more successful than it is. And it's this, it's this real dance of, of, of trusting your art. Right. And I guess I'm glad you said it because I think a lot of people get discouraged that Hey, if I don't get this at this time, like comparing myself to this person, then what I'm doing isn't working. And what advice do you have for that person? Like, let's that is as doing something. Like, let's say they're writing a movie, or they're they're writing a book, or they want to they're following something, but they may not be getting the results that they may have thought that they projected in their mind. It's and a good question. It's yeah. a very good question, and I have an answer. I think great question, actually. It's it's very dangerous. Everything I it's you know, things like social media, everything you're talking about, where the perception of other people can bring you down. Yeah, you compare, you destroy your. But what you learn after after having been through it a lot, and this goes for anything, stock market. It, it doesn't matter when there's all this noise. Okay. 
opinions and do this and this. And you're going, oh my God, all you, could, you have to do is go, it's just noise. It means nothing because it doesn't. And now how do I back that up? Because I haven't seen one person that you thought was a big actor or a big producer. They were somebody who, who looked like they were living large that didn't have some horrendous thing going on in their life, who was miserable, who had just as many obstacles. And I realized, oh, there is no, it's no, there is no there there. So the only thing that I can do is I go, keep your eye on the ball. And it's the same thing. Fundamentals, good material, good podcast, good stock. Okay. Don't go for the noise. Okay. Now, once in a while, the noise might be lucky and you, you hit, but it, 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 you can't control that. But we can control if you're a creative person, you go, make this good. Because that will get through all the, you know, social media and all the noise. If it's good, because people cannot resist good stories, good songs, good podcasts, that's the stuff that resonates. Now, why does it resonate? That's up to the person doing it. The way you're, the way you're interviewing, the way I write, the way someone writes a song, that's all you got. Yeah. But if you, if you learned, if that's yours and you, you learn to stick with it and respect it and just keep going, it will find its way. I don't mean that as a, you know, like some pet pep talk. It just does. Yeah. I'm proof. I'm not some amazingly gifted somebody or whatever, but I wanted to, I didn't know what else I would do. And I decided I have to be good at it. And, you know, like, I just, you know, you just, you just figure out a way until you get to that point. But you have to be willing to stay laser focused and you can fall off the wagon. And be, you know, oh, I read this about this guy. Oh, I saw this about this person. I, how, I'm, I'll never make it. How can I be that? And then you just go, it's just noise. It doesn't mean it's all, it's just, mm. you know, you can say anything right now. You could put up a thing on your social media where you go, God, Lance has got the greatest life in the world. You know, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know there's going to be ups and downs, stresses and no, not non-stresses. So I, that's a little bit of a secret web. And that's why I would tell younger people that are starting. Now, it, it's, it's hard to sometimes buy into that, but it's the truth. Well, yeah, that's why I love that. Because you got into a business that was basically impossible to get into at that time. You had to be, that's why I'm, I'm trying to put myself in that mindset that you must have been in to overcome so many of these like no's and this like small little this little window of opportunity that you got. And it's just I like, like I, I like that as a game. Yeah. Like, what do like, you mean? I, I, like, in other words, I would see a, I'll give you an example that happened two years ago. I had a really great detective. Not great. I, it's a, I liked it a lot. I wrote a TV pilot about a detective. So I'm watching Sherlock, the UK show with Benedict Cumberbatch one day. I never watched it, but I was watching it. I went, oh, it's pretty good. And I realized how big it was and how successful. And I get to the end credits and I see, oh, who's the producer? And I see her name. So I go, you know what? I wonder if she'd like this. Now, most people would leave it at that. So I go home and I go on the internet and find out, oh, this is her company. I search a while. I find her email address. You know, we can figure it out. I write her a I write her an email. Hey, you know, I want, I told her everything. You know, I, could, I can say, oh, I'm the guy who did this and this. So she might have heard from me or might be familiar. And, and all I do is I go, I, I'm, I send it off. I, go, I, have a, I have a script. Here's the one liner about this, this. I really like this. So I thought of you when I watched the show. Sometimes you'll never hear anything back. 48 hours later, I get an email. Can you send it to me? Okay. 
sent her the script. Another day later, love this. We're looking for a new detective show. Sherlock is ending. Can we get on a Zoom? And I go, got it. Got it. Now, I don't know what's going to happen, but I go, I got a shot. So we get on. We really hit it off. She's asking me a lot of questions. She goes, I think we can set this up. Lo and behold, you know, I make a deal. And we, you know, I'm doing it with the UK at ITV. I call my manager and tell him this. And he goes, what? Now, it's not to sound like, I mean, it's just, it's, that's, I, I get a thrill out of going, I wonder if I can get, that, get to that person. And after you've done it a number of times, you go, anyone is, you can get to anyone if it's a good idea. Yeah. And the only thing I had going for me is I knew this was a solid script or I believed in it. So I was betting on if I can get this in front of her face and she reads five or six pages, it's going to grab her. And that's all I got. And I do that all the time. It's very seldom that an agent or manager is going to call you and go, hey, uh, Harris, we got this uh, project. I mean, almost all the stuff I have is just from watching something and I go, well, you know, that person could be sure. You know, and you have to work for it. I mean, I had peers, friends of mine who just want the phone to ring. Literally, and it's just not going to happen in today's world. It's competitive, but I like it. Like, I, I enjoy the hustle of it. So mm -hmm. I think if you can get into that mindset and look at it like a chess game, I'm not saying it's not difficult or hard or you have to have, it's not nerve wracking, but it's such a, a satisfying thing when some, when you get to that person and they go, okay, let's yeah. do that. And it's, it's, it, so that's, that's just my way of doing it. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can relate with that. It's, it's true. And it's, it's just funny because sometimes we go through these, like these, these moments of disbelief where it's like, no. I don't know. I know I do, you know, they're with this, especially doing in this entrepreneurial world and podcast world, there's times you go through these highs, but then you go through these, you know, certain people say no. And you're like, what, what do we know? And then you got to just continue to keep going. Right. It's like, well, I, I know, yeah, I look, I know, you know, I remember Joe Rogan and Mark Marin when they were standups. Yeah. Okay. They only started their podcasts because they, 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 they were on, they couldn't get work as an actor anymore. They were hanging around doing stand-up at the Laugh Factory or, or what have you. And they, it was a new thing. And they just started doing these interviews in their bedrooms, you know, like just, you know, but they just kept doing it because they enjoyed it. More and more people. When they got, when they hit it big, they, they were more surprised than anyone. Just like you're doing this, you've got X amount of hundreds of the interviews. All it takes is one, you know, company or one thing to go. Hey, that fits in really well with our thing. And then suddenly your life changes and you can't believe it. Yeah. Every time that I got, I get a deal or another opportunity to direct or they go, we're going to make this TV show or whatever. You just go, I can't believe it. I did it again. And you think I never thought it. it and you, it just gives you another like to get it. Yeah. Get it. And it just gives you that extra. I can keep doing this because you've done it. So, you know, a number of times, but it happens. Mm -hmm. And, and I just, I'm just absolutely convinced if something is good, it's going to find its way somewhere. And you know, that's a nice way to make a, a living if you can. That's such a great message. What do you have that you're working on right now that people can look forward to? And where's the best place for people to learn more about you? I know that you have your great, you know, movies that you've written, anything else that we can send people? I mean, I have one movie that I, I, I have a movie that I was doing in big action thriller that I was going to do in 2016. It was actually greenlit and financed with a guy named Lorenzo de Bonaventura was the producer. He's the producer of Transformers. And it was, he read the script. 
he really loved it or liked it. He called me over to his house and talked about it. He says, I want you to direct it. So I had his weight. And suddenly I'm, you know, you got the money. He gets the money. I, I fly to New York. Bruce Willis, I get him involved. I get Gary Oldman involved. And I'm directing this huge movie. Now, what eventually happened is, as it always sometimes does, the finance guys didn't have ultimately what they said they had. There was some, so it fell, fell flat. Okay. So I've had the script, but I knew it was a great script. And I went, one day I know it's going to, but it's been sitting around. The pandemic hits. Nobody wants to make movies with guns. Nobody wants to see an action male star anymore. This is like a Steve McQueen thing that I kind of wrote. And now, you know, after all that, now people are kind of going, hey, you know, we, we kind of want to get those action movies again. So I, so I started to see that in the marketplace. So I just kind of put it out to a couple of places, a couple of places, you know, people that I know, producers where, hey, you know, we really like this. And now that movie is, looks like it's going and I'm directing it. And now, do I believe it? I believe it when it happens. But that was, you know, 2016 was for almost seven years ago. Wow. And now, you know, here we go again. You know, I got another crack at the thing. And now it's like, who, who's going to be the actor? And now we're looking at that. So it's not, again, material's good, got another shot, and maybe now's even a better time for me to do it. So that's the one I'm really excited about. And then I have one TV show that looks really promising that I really like as well. So those are the two that I, that I, that are right on the burn. So mm. anyway, I got one more question that I want to ask because I think people will love it. And I just, it came to me, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll be upset if I don't ask. Yeah. Who is, out of all, I'm not going to ask your favorite actor, but like who out of all of the people that are directors, actors, directors, who was the most interesting or memorable that was really like, wow, this person is super talented. Like who? who? As, far, as far as living, dead, past, someone I met, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like what well, it doesn't, living dead doesn't matter. Okay. The one person that I, knew pretty well that I was really impressed with. And it, not only because of the, the, the body of work that he, they had done, but who they were, how, how ins inspirational they were, how honest they were, straight shooting, fatherly they were, all kinds of stuff, was a guy named Alan Ladd Jr. Hmm. Alan Ladd Jr., he was the head of Fox for many years, and he, he was the guy behind Star Wars. And he was the guy, if you look at the, his movies, it's incredible, but he's just, he was a tasteful, humble guy. His father was Alan Ladd, the actor from the forties and fifties. He was he had you know he we played I played tennis at his house every day. He he took me under his wing a little bit, you know, and he became a guy that that he, he was one of the real deal guys. You know, he he, he was honest. He was he would help you. He was caring and he just didn't feel like you were in the Hollywood system yet he was born in Hollywood and he was very much of that but somehow he managed to kind of step above it so he was one of the greats for me very cool I love it man this was this was such a great conversation I am so fascinated by this and your journey and man thank you so much for coming on here and sharing this is just there's so much more we talk about and I just like well, Thank I appreciate you. it. I, I hope I didn't. I know I kind of talk. My there's just so much you you want to you know. This, so I hope I didn't blab my head off. But that was that was really fun. Thank you. No, I really I really appreciate it. And the more detail, the better, because I think sometimes we like 
people love to know that stuff. They love to just get in there and know all these things. And sometimes we don't think we we need to share it. And then it's like people, that's the stuff that people are like, oh, I loved, I loved hearing about that, right? So yeah, thank you so much, man. If you had one piece of advice just for people to walk away with today, let's say the creators, the writer, the actors, whatever, what would that piece of advice be for them? Okay, well, this is going to be a, a tough one too. And that, now you almost have to fake your way through this, like act it but is to realize that no matter who you're meeting, you know, whether there's you know, high up, what experience they have, whatever, you, you don't be intimidated or give too much, give too much credit because it, it's your, your voice, the thing you have is really, it might not be as, you might not have as much experience, obviously, as these people, but they're just as clueless as ever. And again, it goes back to the, the line that, that uh, I said at the beginning of, He's the guy, William Goldman. No one knows anything. And that's true. And when you really know that, and you go, that guy's just as scared. And he's so when, so when I, I, I was shut up after this, but when I meet someone, I'm going, they've got some pain in their life, creatively, financially, whatever. I'm going to help. I'm going to give something that's going to address that pain. So it's a different mindset. Like I go in thinking, oh, I'm going to have something they, that's sellable. But I, I don't look at people and go, oh my God, I'm in. I don't mind going, no, I think, I think that's incorrect. I, this is how I feel. This is what I would do, whatever. And they'll come over to your side if, you're, if you believe in yourself. But if you immediately go, oh, it's so-and-so, you're, it's over. Because you're giving them too much credence and they don't have the answer. Mm-hmm. No one does. Like stock, stock brokers, they go, oh, if you do this, I'll, they have no clue. It's a, it, it, so you just have to go on with your, you have a point of view. And you just have to go in with that and go, this is what I believe and what I feel. I mean, I'll work with you and we'll collaborate, but this is what I want to do. Yeah. And then they go, yeah, let's, if they jump on board, you're it. So that's why. Wow. That was so perfect. Paris, thank you so much, brother. Hey, you got it. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already doing so. We're also wanting some love on the YouTube like I've mentioned before, we really didn't pay attention to YouTube the first few years, and now we, we want to build that thing. So go ahead, subscribe there if you guys want to watch this. And uh, I love you all. I appreciate all of you so much. And if you feel somebody needs this episode, share it. It's always the greatest way to give back. And uh, leave a review if you feel called to do so as well. Much love, everybody. We'll catch you next time.